and welcome to the podcast. Today we are joined by serial entrepreneur and local businessman, Phil Benson. Please like, subscribe, share. We're going up in terms of subscribers, but we want to go up faster and we need your help. And with all that said, welcome to Tomorrow's Workplace Today. I keep saying that you're an entrepreneur, but I need you to broaden that for me. So what, what, when, when I say you're an entrepreneur, what is it that you, what is it you do? What are the businesses that you're involved in, Phil? Um, that's a good question. Is there a lot of them? Yeah, there's a lot of them, but I guess when you talk about entrepreneurship, you're talking about, you know, taking a risk and then using some sort of capital to move that forward. And I guess using a, you know, taking it as a calculated risk in a sense. Mm. And I guess I've done that, but I've done that across different businesses, mm. uh, different industries. Um, and not necessarily because I wanted to go out initially to set up a number of different companies, but initially it was out of necessity, sort of like a um, investment style portfolio where you needed to move from one area to another to mitigate risks, I guess, and offset okay. risks, which were incurrent in different um, different businesses, which I was running at the time. So, so yeah, so I guess like a, a serial entrepreneur would be, the, uh, I guess, the official title, but I just see myself as just someone who comes up with ideas and starts this and stuff. Yeah. So I think when we first met, which I'm trying to think how many years ago that was now, but a few. I think you were you just come out of university, or you, yeah. and you were involved in help me out. Was it milkshake business or food? food certainly yeah, the food close. and drink sector. Is that right? <laughs> close. Yeah. So it's smooth, smoothie bar, smoothies, health food. That's yeah. 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 So, so starters from there then. So what what was that? Was that your first business? Yeah. Okay. To describe what that was. Yeah. So in going back now, 2006. Yeah. That's when I set that up. Okay. Um. I was a graduate at Hull University and I studied business and I was sort of massively inspired when I studied there to go into entrepreneurship and it was something which I hadn't been aware of essentially. So at that time, it wasn't a buzzword. It wasn't anything, you know, you sort of go to university and you're moving into some sort of graduate scheme or graduate job. So the idea of setting up a business didn't even come into my head um but so it's the experiences which i had when i was in the states for a year studying business part of my degree um and i took courses in entrepreneurship um again not with the intent or idea of setting up a business but obviously with the us being i guess the uh free market specialist if you want you know mm. the entrepreneurship capital of the world essentially it was in sort of within inherent within their whole system of that sort of mindset and concept it's so the american it's, dream isn't it it's, yeah that, that whole idea of an american dream and starting something from nothing and so we had sort of an entrepreneur who came into our class to speak to us about mm. you know business and setting up business and why it was important to fail at business and all this sort of thing which was just for me at the time just pretty mind-blowing and um and my experiences over there I, I was a uh, into my sports and um you always sort of assume in america that it's always sort of like the fast food capital of the world as well but actually there was a, a niche which was appearing which was around um smoothie bar concepts and it was something because i was playing a lot of sports at the time i was currently you know constantly consuming after i'd mm. finished training and that sort of thing and i thought wow this is this is amazing this is great and so it was, I guess, a number of different elements and factors which sort of stuck in my head by the time I got back from there to then, after I graduated, to think about what were going to be my next steps. Mm. And um, uh, my business partner, Simon, at the time, he more or less, he's one of my best friends as well. We sort of crossed our experiences, sort of crossed. We actually met over crossover there as well when he was in South Carolina. I was in North Carolina. We played rugby against each other and went to visit him and whatever. It was a hurricane, crazy stuff going on. <laughs> and so I guess 
we 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 found an opportunity to actually say well why do we just want to go down that normal path and why don't we start something ourselves and i remember um uh, the whole coffee bar industry mm. had been exported obviously and come across to the uk and had taken off mm. and um richard branson at the time said you know that the smoothies were going to be like sort of the next big thing um and yeah and it was it was it was a concept where, you know, I thought it was very innovative because you could see all the products and the fruits and the veg and being juiced and made in front of you. And but it's very convenient. It was quick. It was tasty. So it was sort of, you know, taking healthy eating to another, another level and, and something which was accessible and made sense in the same way that you go and pick up a burger from Macadies or whatever, mm-hmm. but you could do that with something nicely packaged. And so, that was where the inspiration for setting it up came from. And where, how did you go from having that initial idea, that inspiration to actually having a running kind of smoothie bar? It was like, again, so there was no playbook for us at the time. It was mm. literally a blank sheet of paper. That was it. And I think the only sort of advice organizations that were around at the time were like business link. Um, if you remember them too vaguely. Yeah. And, uh, it's sort of like bankers basically just saying you need a business plan you need a business plan and outside of that were that much help to be honest Mm. and because we'd come from an academic background in terms of studying the you know the whole business strategy idea and all these sorts of things I remember reading um, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point and a number of different books which were sort of like I guess formative um um, I think there was uh, one called Guerrilla Marketing by Jay Levinson as well. He, uh, that sort of gave us um, a, a structure to be able to write an amazing business plan. I think it was like a novel by the time we'd written it. <laughs> but it was just, a, you know, looking back, I'm thinking, what a waste of time that was. Mm. But we had a thick book and we're talking about, I remember, we, you know, we used some stuff from Malcolm Gladwell's talking about sneezers and people who are going to be the influencers basically for, for opinion leaders, for, you know, moving our products and, uh, uh, you know, trying our products and telling everyone about it and all those, these sorts of things, mm. putting all this academic terminology into this business plan. But this was because this was the advice which we were given, but actually the practical stuff, it was like, you know, how do we get started? How do we do it? How do we register a business? How do we, where, where are we going to do it from? What's the health and safety regulation? What's the market we're going to, you know, mm. there's just so much. And we were just li- literally just learning, having to just figure it out as we went along. And, but that was exciting at the same time, because it was sort of like you're on this journey where you don't know where it's going to go. And on paper, it sounded easy just to set up a juice bar. But in reality, it was anything but. Mm. But because we were young, we were ambitious, and we really sort of believed it was going to happen, and what we can make it happen. And there's a massive gap in the market for it in, in this in this country. Um, it made it. It just made that journey really exciting. So as I say, there was no playbook. We wrote a business plan, but the business plan didn't do anything to help us set up a business. So we literally had to just figure it out as we went along. Hi guys, just jumping in. I want to talk about one of the services we offer, which is robotic process automation, also known as RPA. That is software that replicates human behavior. So if you've got people downloading spreadsheets, attaching them to emails, going on portals, downloading information, moving data around, all that stuff is perfect for a robot. So if that's interesting, get in touch. Let's have a chat. Let's see if we can help. Enough from me. Back to the conversation. So you two graduates got an idea excuse me, coming uh, coming back from the States, how do you go about, you've written War and Peace as a business <laughs> plan. Um, how do you go about funding it? How, how did you get the funding apart from writing War and Peace? So you're a graduate, you're skin. Student and debt. Student debt, all of that, yeah. Um, there were some organisations in the city who were doing some amazing work with young entrepreneurs. So even though it was, you know, we had to sort of sound them out and find them out. So at the time there was um, uh, the John Cracknell Ent- uh, Youth Bank, which was sort of like working with really young entrepreneurs and giving them grant funding. Then we met some people um, in um, 
who were sort of like providing funding in the region. So there was a, there was a fund uh, called Sirius Fund, which was available at the time, which was a BP one. Mm. Um, but you know, we had to figure out quite quickly because we were buying sort of um, you know commercial equipment. We bought a mobile smoothie cart, which initially which was what we started trading on. Um, but it wasn't just like a, you know, a, a, a tiki style one or whatever. It was like it's German made, <laughs> half a ton, had a fridge, had lights, had, a, you know, all the mod cons. Um, and we'd, we'd, we'd seen that um, and we thought this would be a great way to start it in a lean startup way. Mm. So you're not sort of in, having to sort of invest in a, even though it was a big investment, you, you're not having to invest in sort of commercial property or anything like that. So you could, de-risk it slightly so wanted to try to keep our costs as low as possible um it's interesting you were thinking that way already in terms of that lean startup was lean startup as a book out at that point no probably not um, i'm not sure if it was i've read it but i know yeah i'm not sure if we i certainly hadn't read it at that point yeah but it just came naturally to think how do i start small and well i think because initially we was because initially my mate had a bar and we said well should we just do it out of his kitchen in the bar area Mm. and then but because he was in the city centre, we could sort of distribute them to offices and stuff. So that was sort of like one of the ideas. I and mean, then we thought, well, there's loads of, you know, things that are going on around the city centre festivals and that sort of thing. So that's where our mind was. We thought, well, if we're going to do that, then we'd need something which was mobile. I say mobile, this was not really mobile. It, was, <laughs> it had like literally four caster legs on this half a tongue thing. So it wasn't very practical. It looked good, but it just wasn't very practical to move around. Um, on the um, So you you say that you would go to festivals and that yeah. kind of thing. On a day-to-day basis, what did you, or how did you trade? So obviously we've got the cart. Um, I'll, I'll, so I'll answer that, just go back to how we paid for it. So we... Yeah. Um, worked in a pea factory <laughs> so like it's something that students always did but mm-hmm. you could earn a lot of money doing that so it wasn't very glamorous but it was necessary yeah needs to be done worked in an aerosol factory as well which is you know it's got some <laughs> stories there but anyway and um, and begged borrowed and scrimped so you know um, our folks luckily gave us a little bit of money not loads, but gave us a bit of money to, to get going. So we had enough to be able to cobble together what we needed, as well as see grant funding from small amount of grant funding, which managed to buy us one blender. So like at the time, the Blendtec blender was like a grand um, to have one of these blenders and we needed about three or four of them. Um. So yeah, so we, we did that. And then obviously buying this cart mm. meant that we were able to do things like um, there were events which have been run in Queen's Gardens and stuff like that. So it was like um, sports, like a sports relief style thing, folk festivals, jazz festivals, food festivals, that sort of thing. Mm. So that's where we were trading. And we, we, we had to buy frozen fruit um, because that's what we were using to make the products rather than fresh fruit. It had sort of the, the idea of the quality element of the product was going to be better using frozen at, at source and that sort of thing. Mm. You need to add ice, all those sorts of bits. Um, but it meant we you know needed refrigeration, freezers, cool boxes, all those sorts of things. Um, and then we'd have, you know, the disposable cups and then have everything set up there. We'd have like the um, gas, um, gastronome sort of pods with all the f- fruits in. So you can like see, you know, I want that, I want that ladles I mean you sort of pouring it in mm. where we had a menu made up and then people were sort of selecting which other products which they wanted and then we'll sort of like blending it up in front of them and it was great because it, it was you know it, no one had seen anything like that mm. in the city at the time it was certainly you know innocent smoothies at the time was starting to emerge but wasn't you know so smoothies weren't really a thing so I think the novelty element around it were was quite um you know I think people really bought into it um and and then you know parents were saying well you know my kids are first this is the first time we've had fruit and veg you know they never think about having anything like this and this was actually a really good opportunity for them to to try it and they loved it you know, five a day well they said you know oh, i hate you know oh i hate this i hate that i hate that and we used to give up samples and used to you know used to lap it up mm. so yeah so that was that was quite um interesting to see how that change people's mindset and view on, on on the products as well so yeah but 
I remember on our very first trading day, I think we we got the timings all wrong. And I think it was like a, a sports, it was one of the sports relief things. It was like a marathon, mm. 5K or whatever, 10K. And uh, we'd packed the van across where the start finish line was. So we had our cart on the one side and then our sort of stock across the other side. And I think the race had started, but then people had already sort of like, we're already sort of converging as well around all the different food places. And, and so we had to run f- to get the stock, frozen stock. And I just remember horrifyingly sort of carrying this bananas in this bag and box and it broke and I like leaving the trail on the start finish line <laughs> as we were running to get to the car. So it's sort of like it was a baptism of fire, literally just like two clowns trying to, uh, <laughs> trying, to get, trying to get started. Yeah. And how, how long did it take you to turn a profit on that type of business? Is that, was it quite quickly profitable and no. kind of funding now? Um, well, okay. So in, in that context, yeah, uh, because cause your overheads are you know re- you know you pay pitch fee whatever relatively mm. low then you know we, you know we weren't making big bucks at all but we were making you know a little bit of money. Mm. Um, but it wasn't until we 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 moved that cart into the um, Hull Students Union, so that's where we asked to be based. Yeah. Uh, it took a lot for us to get there in the end, but we managed to do it. That's a story mm. in of itself. Um, but then obviously because of that, you having other overheads and costs, which then meant, you know, basically we were, the amount of time that we're working, we were basically working for nothing. Mm. It's tough. Yeah. And, and so from that, I say humble beginnings, strong, strong beginnings, but how did you kind of grow that business? How has that business evolved over the last decade or so? Yeah. So you know, moving into the students' union was our first step to sort of like being in a physical place, mm. still de-risked with using the, the cart. Um, we were told it wasn't going to work in that location. We turned up with a cart and originally, so that's what we, in the sports centre, that's where it was being stored, but we didn't tell we didn't tell them that we're bringing it on that day and we'd actually forgotten to bring the ramp. So I had to break down a door to get the cart off the van um, and I remember for put like a boxing pad underneath it to keep the weight because it's so heavy. Mm. Um, but we'd been in discussions for a long time to be able to get a, a spot in the students' union. And it, we sort of like had to force a hand in a way and sort of ask, it's that idea of asking for forgiveness rather than permission at the time. But it did accelerate the talks, which enabled us to, to actually start trading there. Um, but we brought in more memberships for the sports centre. And so because of that, and the success that we're getting from people coming from across the campus into the main students' union um, into the sports centre, which didn't have a necessarily high footfall because it was a bit um, um, separate from the, the main campus. Uh, they wanted us to actually start trading on the main campus within the main students' union. So we had like a fully built bar within the main mm. catering area. Um, so that was our start of sort of like properly going for it, if you like. And quite quickly, I think about a year in, were approached by this coffee company who were in multiple universities across the UK. Mm. And they approached us and said, look, we love the concept. Would you be interested in, you know, working with us in all these different universities? We can get you into, every, you know, hundreds of universities, basically, um, under a fr- some sort of franchise model using our our, our brand. What so is the brand? Sorry. It was Zing, Zing Smoothies okay. with an X. Um. And we thought that was it. We thought we'd made it. And we were sort of like, you know, a couple of years in, two, three years in, we're thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is, you know, literally within a space of, you know, this short time scale, we're going to be a national company. And, but when we had those discussions, we felt it wasn't going to be quite right for us. We felt that the, the deal on the table at the time wasn't going to be, wasn't going to be really where we wanted to be. Um, In what sense? Um, I think they were a lot older than, obviously you'd expect a lot older than us, we were very young. And, but we had the way our brand was, you know, um, our strapline was feel great, have fun. So we were very, you know, the way we used to 
um, target this, you know, we knew the student market really well, obviously just graduating, we knew exactly what we wanted. So, you know, we were positioning it in a way which was very, um, you know, we used to do crazy stunts and stuff at um, Freshers Week and dress up and, you know, get people thinking. Get into the vibe of it. Yeah, get into the proper mix of it. And we felt if we went with this uh, coffee company, we'd be sort of a bit more restricted in terms of how we'd be able to do that. Because actually we were successful because we were selling stuff in a different way and we we're doing it in a very functional way as well. So it wasn't just all, you know, you're having a refreshing drink. It was very, you know, it's going to cure your hangover or going to help mm. you. You know, you, you're a student, you don't have that much, um, you know, you're eating pot noodles and you know all the other crap so actually this is your opportunity to get something decent you know things like wheatgrass shots which we used to get cues for I and mean, say it's like crap but people used to love it <laughs> you know and just the idea of you know thinking i'll get half a pound of green stuff in my you know down my uh, down my gut oh, it really worked so so yeah so it was just a number of different things financially as well we felt we were you know we, we were going to be losing out a bit as well so I think there's a number of factors where we just felt although on paper it sounded amazing it just didn't really transpire we had no you know number of negotiations mm. um but yeah it just didn't transpire so we actually decided to go and do it ourselves looking back is that, was that a good decision it's hard to say because we've taken a different route because of it so in a context of us doing it ourselves it was probably the wrong decision because we we franchised to uh, two universities. First one was Liverpool University, um, and we franchised to John Moore's University as well. And we had to learn very quickly, you know, what that meant in terms of franchising mm. your brand. And it was it was really interesting because we we had we were franchising to an organization which was their students union mm. now when you're franchising you know traditionally in a franchise model you you want to franchise to somebody who's got that same passion mm. as you and drive to make something happen when you're franchising to an entity mm. it completely changes that dynamic so we were had uh, members within that students union who where there was high staff turnover where people weren't consistently monitoring things so it just meant our our bit our part of that puzzle was missing so we used to you know um, checks we used to go up and, and see how it was going and you know there'd be someone behind a bar who was supposed to be selling our products and they just didn't have a clue what was going on or mm. you know there's even one scary point where it was a new person, but we didn't even know that the sold smoothies. And as soon as that happened, we said, yeah, we're going to have to pull this. Did you do it on like a secret shopper basis? Yeah. Mm. But it can undermine your brand, can't it? 100%. Yeah, 100%. We knew it was going to be damaging our brand because, you know, we we had that full control in terms of what we were doing, giving it to somebody. We did, you know, we had all the training manuals. So, you know, we had all that part to it. But as I say, if, if it's not someone who's as passionate as yeah, you and, and, and leading it. It's going to dilute. It dilutes it. And yeah. then it just has the directions lost in terms of, mm. in terms of, you know, how do, are we going to move this forward? How are we going to move this forward? How are we going, you know, all of that wasn't there. And so we, we figured out quite quickly, yeah, we needed to pull it. So in that respect, um, it might have been better to have gone with a coffee company who've already got an established base and potentially that would have sat alongside them. But, it it also opened up other avenues which might not have been possible. What were those avenues? First one was um, schools. Okay. So we got a primary school teacher who actually came to our very first mobile cart one, and he was a tr he used to train in the gym, and he said, "Look, our kids would love this in terms of what you're doing. I do an after school healthy kids club. Our kids would love it." So we went in there, we did a talk about benefits of fruit and veg, little workshop sort of thing, got them making the products. And then they started ordering on a regular basis from us. So we used to email us and say, you know, I want 10 strawberry bananas or whatever it was, tell us how much it was going to cost. 
Um, and we thought, yeah, this is great. You know, we're going into schools and we're sort of creating uh, an awareness um, for, for young people about what they're eating, their diets and trying to do it in a creative way. Um, so that led us to then think about going into schools on another level in terms of can we build this to a, a, a an audience who wouldn't ordinarily be probably receptive, which was sort of like the secondary school market. Yeah. This is where we turned it into sort of like a business enterprise mm. um, workshop sort of thing. So we went into the to, to secondary schools and we said, look, you know, create, design your own smoothies and come up, market it, how, you know, what are the benefits, who are you going to sell, to, all those sorts of things, and then making the products themselves. <clears throat> and then, so simultaneously as that was happening, we um, we set up, uh, uh, we were approached by a couple in York um, and they, they were running a juice bar in York on the shambles. And uh, husband and wife, you know, they, they, I think fortunately they were divorced and whatever, so the business, so once to sell the business, had heard us on the radio and they said, look, would you be interested in in um, taking a, uh, taking this on. And um, so that led us onto the high street at that point because, and for us, it made sense only because we were trading in, within a university context, we were only trading 38 weeks of a year because of the, you know, the, uh, mm. the, the term time. So we were needing to fill in those gaps in terms of our downtime. Obviously there were things like festivals still going on, whatever, but yeah. we still needed something which was a little bit more consistent. So actually the high street made sense in that regard, but obviously that was a whole another beast and animal. So, so we had the high street and then had the schools thing. And one thing we did with each of those, we married, so going into the schools, we used to do it like a competition where the winning team would then get the opportunity to sell their winning smoothie in our shop. So it sort of gave them that. But then we felt, well, why do we just want to restrict it to one day so we decided that we wanted to set up um a permanent enterprise within the school themselves so we actually got uh, we actually worked with uh, archbishop centenary academy and um, really forward thinking head teacher andrew chubb who was really keen on inspiring young people about uh, setting up their own businesses and entrepreneurship and um we sort of had to go through a lot of hurdles and hoops to um figure out how t- could we do a smooth student run smoothie bar in a school and it was something which organizations for example like young enterprise and whatever mm. didn't do because it was sort of like food-based business that sort of thing but we were really passionate about trying to get that in school so we we managed to do that we worked with andrew chubb and we got our first smoothie bar set up there and run by the pupils run by the pupils so we went in we did the training and then they were selling it so mm-hmm. lunchtime break time that sort of thing um parents evening sports days whatever it was they had that flexibility Brilliant. and they used to keep 100 percent of the revenue we made our revenue through training and through supplying the stock because obviously we were able to buy yeah. get economies of scale all that sort of thing so it was a great model mm-hmm. and that sort of introduced me into the sort of social enterprise side of things as well in terms of saying you know can you make money and still and do good at the same time mm-hmm. which i thought was a uh, an amazing concept to to think about when you're running a business, and um, and then that's when that the idea of franchising then went into schools. So it didn't matter that a kid would make a mistake on our, our smoothie bar because actually the the whole um, the whole concept was completely different to what we're doing trying to franchise into universities. So we teamed up with. Um, we teamed up with someone who was a specialist in uh, enterprise education and he, he loved what we were doing. And we ended up sort of franchising into schools across the country, London, Wales, Liverpool, Manchester. Um, we worked in um, was a, a school which had uh, pupils who had disabilities and they just wouldn't have had that opportunity to have that work experience yeah. in a safe environment. So actually it was a great opportunity to do that, working with NEETS as well, so people who are out of employment and giving them, so whether it's at community centers and that sort of thing. So it, and then scaling right down to primary schools, we actually had primary schools who were actually running their own smoothie bar businesses. So, so yeah, so that was, I guess, in terms of impact, one of the biggest things and, and one of the, I guess, where we'd 
diverted to once we realized the university route wasn't going to be the right route. Um, but then, as I say, that was all sort of happening simultaneously alongside the high street business, which at that time was uh, failing. <laughs> and this is at the shambles? Yeah. You took that, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we took it. Yeah. And um, we took it and I think we always knew it was going to be a big step, taking something of that magnitude mm. um, in, uh, you know, and yes, you do have the footfall, you do have the people there. With that comes cost, competition, all those elements, and I think we we tried to sort of drop what was working really well in the university setting into a high street model, and sort of completely got it wrong in terms of our market. What would you do differently then if you did that again? Would you would you do it but do it differently, or would you just not not have done it at all? <laughs> um, well, as it stands now, it's, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm not in it anymore, but um, but it's doing really well at the moment in, in its current form, which is street food, sandwiches, that sort of thing. Um, but at the time, um, yeah, 100%, like we had to go through, I said we it almost killed everything that we'd built. So it would have, you know, if we'd lost that, we would have lost the schools, we would have lost the university, everything would have gone. Mm. And, you know, we were that close. So sort of in... in but I think we launched in the summer, which was a good time to launch. But people's perception was, this is a summer drink. This is like, you know, something mm. that I'm just going to have like an orange juice or whatever. Mm. They weren't thinking in the mindset of, oh, this is an energy boost before I play football or a flu fire or a, you know, a, any of those sorts of things. So and that was a problem. And, and obviously, and the reason why smoothies didn't take off the way coffees did is because you know, climate, you know, that's why it's so successful in America because it's so hot, mm. you know, where we were, it was so hot, it was humid, you know, so that's why there's so many bars and stuff going on there. Whereas here, it's completely different. And so people don't, didn't receive that product in the same way as I would do a, a coffee. So we had to quickly try to iterate. We tried to do that two or three times, invest in additional money to try to change a concept um, before we got it right in a way but it, it didn't happen overnight and as I say we we're very close to sort of losing everything at that point. Okay me again just jumping in to talk about one of the processes that we often get asked to automate which is the processing of supplier invoices also known as accounts payable automation. So what does that mean? Well most businesses receive invoices from their suppliers and a lot of businesses still have people that are manually reviewing those invoices making sure that they're correct making sure they're accurate and then manually reeking them into a finance system and already or an ERP system. Well, our solution can automate that process. So typically an invoice will come in, we'll use capture technology to understand what's on that invoice. We'll then match that data up against good receive note to make sure that we've received the product. We'll match it up against purchase order data to make sure that somebody has placed an order for that product. And ultimately, if we can match that up, we can automatically push that into an ERP system or finance system and nobody has to touch it. How good does that sound? If there are exceptions, if there are things that need to be checked, that's fine. We can use digital workflow to push that to somebody to eyeball it and say, is this correct or does something need to change? Ultimately, though, that can then be pushed again into an ERP system or a finance system. This is about making your life easier. It's about making operations as quick and as efficient as possible. And we do that all the time. If that sounds interesting, then get in touch. That's enough from me. Back to the podcast. So you said that um, at, the, at the start that you're a serial entrepreneur. So this one, like you said, got really close. I hate to think the sort of stress levels in, involved in that, but it obviously didn't put you off. So what other areas have you kind of got into you know got into to mm. to feed that entrepreneurial sort of yeah appetite well so there's always you know if you look at um unsoft matrix and stuff and you look into like whether it's new markets product diversification that sort of thing um it was always when opportunities came it was like is that something which you can do and which you can build on to 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 make that business so when we were approached, for example, when we were doing the smoothies and someone said, actually, you know, we started doing end of year balls and putting booze in it. So all of a sudden now we're making, you know, daiquiris and margaritas in a frozen style cocktail mm. and that sort of thing. Now that opened up some doors for us in terms of other avenues that we, we looked into. So we ended up after, um, you know, trying to get into 
venues and that sort of thing to sell those sorts of products. And so, you know, we ended up getting a contract with race courses and stuff where we actually do that now. Um, and so that was a new market, new product in a way, um, but using the experience that we'd already gained. Yeah. So, so obviously when you're setting something like that up, then it's like, you know, what's next? What, what do we need to do to grow this? Cause you know, to stay doing the same isn't, isn't going to get you to the next level. Um, and it's interesting because it sort of led, I, I guess the experience of setting up something makes, makes it easy to set up other things, yeah. but it doesn't make it easy to run that business. Because it's, it's going to be different challenges, but you know, the process, the process sort of remains the same in the sense of what you need to do. You need to find finance. You need to find you know all these sorts of things. Yeah. But you can't underestimate then what you you know the direction that you need to take to be able to make that stick and make it and make it work. So after sort of doing that, I had especially doing um alcohol doing cocktails my in 2017 um there was an opportunity for me to do a joint venture with city of culture which i so i was sort of setting that up i set that up with city of culture the humber, humber street gallery which i sort of ran as a cafe and bar rooftop bar mm-hmm. so <clears throat> that was sort of like a new challenge in terms of in the creative sector because it was sort of like a rotating art gallery and all the rest of it. And I was on a board as well, actually, at the time for City Culture, which was great. Mm. Um, So that was a new project, standalone project. But then I was using, again, the experiences which I had within my existing businesses to be able to say, well, actually, can I use this to enhance what I'm already doing? So that meant actually I was able to then use that as a base to not just in of itself, but, but for other, other stuff, other events that we were getting involved with. So we asked to be, you know, doing like corporate events, going down to London with, uh, um, with, with a team to do sort of like, you know, hospitality stuff and, and whatever. And this was all coming from a whole based company. So I sort of stuck to where my knowledge and expertise were, but then able to sort of spot opportunities and say, okay, when that, I need to set up something where I feel it's going to add value to what we're currently doing. Um, I will. Um, and that led me into, um, event, I think 2018, I got into retail, which was by chance, but it was just one of those where I felt there wasn't an offer, um, in the current area of the fruit market. So I said, look, we need to do something where we can get people to, you know, there's more people living here. There's, and it's not, you know, it's an island and no one, there's no shop here. Why not? But I didn't mm-hmm. want to just do it as, as a shop. So I built a contact with a number of different um, local producers. So whether it was a coffee roaster or beer maker, you know, breweries and that sort of thing. I thought, can we create something where we're getting new, exciting produce on the shelves in a different way, as well as selling general daily essentials so mm. again it had a link and a theme in with the with the um with the food and drink which 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 i had expertise in that's still around so that's an independent <clears throat> yeah like a convenience store but it's more of a high-end one in terms of independent products and independent producers. products producers so you, you know you can still get your newspapers you can still get your tobacco you can still get all of that yeah but you, you know we, we we focus on getting unique products yeah. on the shelf and is um, zing still operating zing still operates in schools? schools okay yeah no more on a, more on a workshop on, on a workshop basis more than the um because again so w- when we when we went into school setting up these franchises we um we were very although they were very successful because they were you know some schools made some serious dosh from it so some kids were like getting paid wages or they'd be investing into other projects which would then you know um create other businesses within schools that sort of thing but 
we faced a problem where you still needed somebody within that environment mm. to lead it and yeah. teachers mm. are under a lot of stress yeah they've got a lot of things on their plate so unless you have so if you have that teacher who we connected with mm. not there anymore or had to move on or do something else then who's going to lead that because they still needed someone to be able to lead it within their their school so that's where we eventually found I think as and it probably systematic of, of what's going on in schools at the moment but where you know teachers were enthusiastic and wanting to really do this and saying look these are the sorts of things we should be doing for our kids in schools but actually we're being burdened by all these other things which we have to take on now mm. it made it difficult to be able to try to sustain that so so we'd still have some operating but not but you know we it's more on a workshop basis See, rather so than actually selling it in terms of a trading entity that where i can now buy a smoothie mm. does that not exist anymore not not in that not in that not in the shop no 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 okay no not in the shop no. on so, the, the, shamb- the which shop is, on the shambles is that's more of a sandwich yeah so that's that's into, yeah that's evolved into street food and we had to you know it was uh necessity so so you can still buy you can still buy yeah. juice juices but it's very minimal it's, mm. it's, it's focused on a, a sandwich concept i existed in 2018 um but by then we'd moved into the street food and we got to look like number one on TripAdvisor, even though we weren't chefs or anything like that. Mm. We brought in a consultant chef to help us out. And um, it was before sort of street food was a thing, I guess, at the time. But yeah, we had to, we had to do something. Mm. And, and when we first started, we just, again, we got it all wrong because we we, we had like a massive menu and just didn't do it. There's a lot well. of value to that though, isn't there? Getting it wrong. So Zing's been a great yeah. learning experience. Yeah. By the sound of it. Yeah, it's, it's foundational in terms of um, learning, you know, thinking you've got a plan and, and a vision, which is important, but then saying actually there will be bumps or yeah. whatever. They're arguably road. as <laughs> valuable as the stuff that you get right, I think. The, the learnings, yeah, 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 100%. I think, you know, if and, and that was certainly one of the key lessons from my time in America, which I still sort of keep in my head was actually you were not, were not considered to be an entrepreneur unless you'd failed. Mm. That was like seen as a badge of honor. <laughs> so, so on that then, um, do you now help emerging or, you know, wannabe entrepreneurs? And if you do, it sounds like by nodding your head, you do. Um, do you let them make the same mistakes that you did or do you, um, direct them down a route, or, or better question: How do you how do you coach them? I think I think it's I think it's important to not if you can learn what mistakes other people have made. I think it's important not to replicate that because there's people who've trodden that same path, mm. and there's a reason why. Not in all instances, but there's a reason. You know, if you can figure out why did they, what went wrong, what happened, and what am I going to maybe not do, I think that's important. That's not to say that I don't, you know, I do value failure in the sense of the learning that you get from it. But ideally, if you can learn before taking that step and it still doesn't, you know, if it still doesn't work at that point, then at least you've taken steps to mitigate because... At the end of the day, you know, you, you 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 don't set up a business to fail, right? You you want to be successful. But it is character building mm. in many ways. And it's inevitable in, in many ways as well. You know, if you look at the statistics of businesses, you know, I think one in five in the first year will not succeed. And then the longer you go on, I think in the first three years, in, again, probably about 60%, three in five will go out of business so you actually you're more likely to to fail the longer you go on as a startup so there's going to be things which people have done which you can learn from but then there's going to be stuff where you just can't avoid it and Mm -hmm. I think that's what you just got to be you know you got to be conscious of that and be ready for it and say actually what how what am I going to do to mitigate that you know you can put every contingency plan in the world but you know, there's always going to be something which you will not have thought about and something that's going to hit you over the head 
Mm. Yeah. If you, if you could wind the clock back 14, 15, 16 years, however long since you started that first business, what are the kind of one or two things that you would do differently? Um, so I've, I've, I've just recently, I've just set up a e-commerce business off the back of my retail business. And um, I'm doing a lot of work in the tech sector at the mm. moment, um, especially trying to increase representation and innovation in the tech sector, which I feel so essential in the current climate that we live in post-Brexit. And one thing which, um, you know, I come from an F&B background, as you can, as I've gone through, but now, you know, sort of finding myself in e-commerce and then also doing mm. stuff in, in tech and working with some massive tech companies and stuff like that. So I wish I was able to um, have come from a place where I'd learned to code <laughs> and that I realized what the value of technology is to every single facet of life that we do. So it would, it never, it never went into, was in my mindset at the time because, you know, I was doing a business degree and obviously my journey's taken me into an, into these these other aspects but if i knew what i knew now then i'd certainly wish that that's where i'd put a lot of my effort in, into that side of things and i think it's you know i think it's as important as reading and writing doing yeah. you know maths i think every kid needs to learn how to code mm. that's a good point what um what plates are you currently spinning then so you've got the retail mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. you've got the e-commerce mm-hmm. Zing's now in the past for you, is it? It, it, it still workshops? exists apart from schools, yeah. yeah. Um, Events still exist. Okay. Yeah, so we're still doing um, contracts with, uh, you know, so you'll find us at sort of your race course. Or, with a, a cart? No, no. We've, right. got a, we've got a, well, yeah, we've got a mobile unit, which we use as well, but yeah. we've also got um, a, a built bar within yeah. your race course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else? Um, and then, well, in 2017, I mentioned um, um, I co-founded UK Black Tech. Now, I, I met up with a few technologists um, and it was through education, actually, that because we built an app and stuff for, for some of the workshops and whatever that we'd done. But we're looking at, you know, how do we look at, how do we try to make um, strides in terms of, with products and services that are being created in the tech world because we're finding that there were many barriers to entry for people getting into technology but also some of the products and services which were being created weren't in many cases fit for purpose and were sometimes isolating certain groups and marginalizing certain groups of people which is you know so you know i'll give you an example if you've got an um, uh, uber drivers were struggling to work because the facial recognition technology wasn't taken into account, you know, um, the facial features or skin color, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, these are things which should be, you know, um, easy mm. to solve, but because they're not being looked at in that lens, then all of a sudden it becomes a monumental problem. And when you're having things which become monumental problems and that actually creates friction and problems in society, which, you know, which we need to make sure that everyone's able to participate and make a living or contribute. So when you've got products and services and so many examples of this, which sometimes gets overlooked. Mm. um, So you've got that side of it. But then as I say, the talent, you know, we always talk about talent and how we need more talent. The talent's there, but the opportunity isn't always there. So actually, how do we harness getting the people who want to, who are are the future innovators, who are the people who are going to be, you know, creating the the next big thing? How do we make sure that we're giving them uh, an opportunity to showcase who they are, showcase their skills, all yeah. those sorts of things. Um, 
and how do we get the best ideas? Because that's what it's essentially, that's what it's about. How do we get the best ideas? And you're not going to get that in a silo. So that's what UK Black Tech was created, was to What's create causing that. them silos though? I think it's people's experiences, you know, like people, people's experiences, if you're used to a certain thing, you know, you look at all the statistics tell you that there's a lot of discrepancies. And there's always, you know, you're always going to expect um, some discrepancies um, some discrepancies and imbalances, but you know when you're looking at VC funding for minority or underrepresented groups, mm. so low. Mm. You know, I think you less than one so percent. Oh, there we go. Something like you know, and so, so there's organisations which are coming in to try to bridge that gap. But you know, you're thinking, well, how many great ideas are not being funded right now? Yeah, exactly. Because of that, and it's 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 scary. So. I think it's, but because if you're used to a certain, you know, like obviously in the States, you know, you'd be used to sort of like people coming from Stanford or coming through Y Combinator or whatever. And you're just sort of having that same mm. train of people, mm. you know, the networks, you networked into a certain, you know, place element. And then, so you're overlooking other areas, you're overlooking other people who could be really doing something transformational. Do you think it happens in this region? So it's interesting because I think it happens in this region, but I think also our region gets, as a whole, will get overlooked versus mm. the South. Yeah. So it's double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. But what could businesses in this region do more of? So I think, well, there's a number of things. I think... I think first of all, it's acknowledging. It's like saying, you know, what do we need? What do we need uh, to make what we do here successful? And and what's happening outside of our region? That's that we're not getting here. So uh, I used the example before about um, uh, VCs, and you know, VCs aren't the answer to everything. But what we do know is is those companies who are traditionally funded through those sorts of vehicles tend to have better opportunities of survival, of expertise, of, you know, all those sorts of things which will enable businesses to succeed. Mm. If you don't have that access to capital to be able to do that, then it makes it harder. You, you, you're you already at a disadvantage. So I think the network, that sort of networked um, feature that we sort of seem to be lacking here needs to be built um, in a way which allows us to tap into the talent that exists here and the expertise that exists here as well. I think, as I say, I think just being exposed to what's what's going wrong. I think, you, you know, because if, if you don't acknowledge that things are going wrong, then you can't change it. Mm. So I think it's just being aware, you know, and I'm not going to use the word um, <laughs> um, get political with this, but you know, when you talk, you know, when, when people talk about woke, all, you know, for me, it's just saying, look, just be, just be open to things. Like don't just be in, in your own mm. head and, and, and your own ideas about things. Cause that's not the way life works. Mm. So just be open to what's going on around you. And essentially, you know, you think we all live here to, you know, we don't live here as individuals, you know, everyone, whether you're in your business, whether you're in your, neighborhoods whether you're, you're you know you're in a social setting you know we, we everyone lives on this planet as as a community we can't exist without that so actually how do we create a better how do we create a better um you know i don't want to sound too idealistic here but how do we create a better society for us all so that we all thrive because if we don't all thrive then there's going to be discourse when there's discourse, then people get angry and people, you know, want to fight each other and, and disagree with each other. So actually, what are we doing to, to say, can we create better opportunities for everybody? Because everybody wins. It shouldn't, I think many times we, we, we think of things, if you win, then you have mm. to lose. Mm. That's zero sum and mm. that helps nobody. So actually... It's about trying to say, how do we uplift everybody so that everyone wins? Rise that tide. And I'm not saying people shouldn't have, you know, there's always going to be discrepancies in, in so many different ways, but it doesn't mean that someone has to 
be at the bottom of a barrel, does it? Is education um, helping in a way in terms of the accessibility into education, into tech at a young age for, for minority groups? I think, so the, the great thing about tech is anyone can get involved. You know, it, it will open doors in so many ways. There's so many opportunities which didn't exist previously, which is, exists now. So that's, you know, and, and that's through some amazing um, technology that's been developed. And I think people's awareness of that as well. Um, but I think, yeah, I think people, I think the awareness in, in uh, particularly in s- schools is essential for that um, in terms of access, but there's still a problem. And, and, you know, if you think about the, certainly uh, in academia, you're probably going to get most people from Oxbridge, whatever, who will still afford, get better opportunities. So, uh, and I guess it's the nature of a beast, but I reckon that will change soon because actually things are evolving. It's going to be a lot of disruption. You know, you can probably learn everything you need to learn on YouTube now. Mm. Or ask a chat GPT. Or, or ask a chat. <coughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, like, um, it, 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 so that's, that's a, you know, and, and that's, this is what I love about technology is it's disruptive. And, you know, as long as it's disruptive in the right way, mm. where it's creating um, better opportunities. And I think that's the right, right way of doing it and anyone can get involved in it so i think i think you know it's for me it's just about saying can we level try to level playing field where people can start the race in in the same position and then whoever whoever goes further great yeah i think the from my perspective as a a, i'm running a business we call ourselves a tech business not in the strictest sense that we're creating something Mm -hmm. New, we're not we're not a manufacturer of technology, but we nevertheless class ourselves as a tech business. So, as a leader of a tech business, what's helpful to me is to know where we're doing something wrong, or where we're missing an opportunity, or missing a trick. Because our approach to recruitment, for instance, is across the board, and it's say the right person for the job as a, in terms of our mentality. Um, whether or not we're inundated or not with applicants from a wider sort of mm. range of range of sort of uh, life I guess mm. I don't actually know the mm. question the answer to that I don't know if it's where we are locally or mm. what's going through the, mm. the the education system in this region I'm not sure what's holding us back mm. from having a more diverse workforce for mm. instance mm. I don't know what we can physically practically do to to improve that situation and give that self give ourselves mm. a more level playing field mm. Yeah, and I think you know, I think that's a more complicated question. Yeah, which can, which can go, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. like, but it's a right question. Yeah, yeah, it's a right question, and I don't think it can be answered, you know, really quickly in this. But 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 one thing I will say is, you know, is where are you looking for talent? Because if you're looking at the same for in the same places for talent, the you're going to get the same thing. So yeah, so so it's about broadening. You know, where are we actually looking at recruiting? Yeah. Um, and I've always said as well, you know, we know, you know, I love Hull, that's why I've stayed here. As an entrepreneur, I, I feel it was the best place for me to have set up my business because I was afforded a great business community that existed here. You know, people who I could pick up the phone to seasoned entrepreneurs, mm. which I probably might not have been able to get in some other cities. So there's so much that benefits of being an entrepreneur in this city that I feel and it, you know, and 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 you know what I'm doing now, it doesn't matter where I'm based, but I can be. But but being here for me, I think gives me a, a bit of an edge. Mm. So, and I think sometimes, especially in Hull, we tend to be, we do great things. We're doing great things in this city, and we don't necessarily always shout about it. No. So because we're not shouting about it, you know, it's not arrogance. I think it's just saying, look, we are doing great things, and you can be a part of it. Now, you know, what's going to make someone move from London to come to Hull or whatever? But we saw it. We saw what was happening during COVID. We mm. saw people yeah. were selling up the housing, saying, I don't want to be part of this yeah. rat race. In, in, yeah. in, in, I'm, I'm moving to somewhere where I can get affordable housing, nice garden, better living standards, all those sorts of things. That's an opportunity for talent because you can 
get people in. So I think it's how you position it, how this region positions itself, how companies position themselves, mm. where they look for talent and being open-minded. Because I think sometimes, you know, you can be, it, it can be quite scary as well when you're not used to doing something different or you're taking on people you wouldn't ordinarily take on. So, but, you know, every single statistic will show you that the more diverse workforces will outperform those which aren't. Mm. But it's, it's it's just basic common sense, right? If you're getting views from a wide Breakfast range views, of different yeah. places, then you're going to create innovation. That's how innovation happens. Well, what's the future look like for you? Do you, do you have like a, a grand plan of where you're going to be in five <laughs> years' time? Or it, it strikes me that you've evolved your, organ- yeah. your business over time, yeah. looking for opportunities and mm-hmm. taking those doors. Mm-hmm. Is that... Are you going to continue to involve it or do you have a, I'm going to be here in five years time, the business is going to like this? I'd love to be in in the next sort of, you know, I still love what I do, still love Mm. running businesses. Um, I guess, you know, I feel it's the best job in the world, the most stressful job in the world, Mm. but also the best job in the world because I can wake up and I can do what I want and I can dream something and say, can I make that happen? And try to put steps in place to make that happen. Mm. That to me is irreplaceable regardless of anything, but it's tiring. Mm. It's tiring. So yeah, I I think, you know, I think as soon as I lose my passion for that, then my bigger plan, I guess would be, um, you know, I'd love to be an angel investor. I'd love to see other companies thrive give advice on that basis as well in terms of how can I help other mm-hmm. businesses who are going through some of the challenges and things which I've experienced how can I help and assist and you know move 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 a needle because actually you know it, it it's entrepreneurship is what's going to underpin any nation's success and without that then we just will you know we just won't be able to be at the level where we need to be. We won't have a level of innovation, which is going to, especially in this country that we're going to need. So I'd love to be in that position where I'm able to do that on a, I guess more on a full-time basis and and, and hopefully help other other businesses and um, and give back to, to, you know, especially to this region in terms of what, you know, what, what it's given back to me. Just what you were saying near the end there, don't feel, it's, and I think, don't think the region's too bad, but evidently it could be better. It, it's the marketing of yeah, the 100%, area and, and getting, 100%. It, getting it out there. And I, I also think on the subject of getting, you know, more um, my minority groups, if that's the right saying, mm-hmm. into like the tech sector, mm-hmm. I think that will change with the way that technology is now, like you said, making it way more accessible mm-hmm. and, and maybe for our children's generation, mm-hmm. that's when it, there won't be any boundaries. Yeah. You mentioned about Oxbridge and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think give it five, 10 years mm-hmm. when they're all coming out of school or going into, you know, some might go, do you know what? And we've got a lad downstairs. He's like a really bright, bright lad, but he's like, do you know what? I don't want to go to university because mm-hmm. I'm going to go and do that. But mm-hmm. as we were saying, actually now that there's all sorts of stuff, you know, that's just accessible, my son, I sell technology and I've got probably a very loose, uh, I've got enough of an understanding to be able to sell the concepts Mm -hmm. and then get clever people downstairs to make it happen. Whereas my son, some of the stuff he comes in and says, dad, and I'm like, whoa, but you sell it, dad. Yeah, not quite like that, son. And they're doing it just like once upon a time we did geography. Yeah. They're now doing it as part of the country. 100%. Yeah, Digital natives. 100%. That that challenge, that question mark over... um, diversity or having more eth- um, ethnically diverse mm-hmm. people in tech mm-hmm. it's the same argument or same debate around women in mm-hmm. tech mm-hmm. 100% and 100% and you think but, but you think about this right because you've got uh, women in tech which is a problem as well and there's amazing women technologists who, who you you know exist so you and think you, you, you mm. think about women mm. Think about maybe dis- disabled as well. But think if you're a woman, disabled, and you're black. By default or whatever it is, proportionately, we're statistically speaking likely to get more white male applicants mm-hmm. because it's a larger proportion of the population. Mm-hmm. 
across the country it's a larger proportion of the population mm -hmm. in the region mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't and, but when a when a, a female or mm. a black black applicant comes along whatever we don't you know obviously we're not discriminatory in any way it's just proportionately that there are a few applicants mm. i just don't know what we can do as an employer to increase that number or whatever i don't and i think as well like it shouldn't be and i think sometimes it gets put into being a a, a tick box sort of thing where definitely you know, we have to, yeah positive you know, discrimination yeah and, and it, it shouldn't be going down that route so yeah. so but but i guess the point is saying what are you doing which is actively being you know being um positive you talk about positive script but what but positively finding candidates who won't necessarily always apply to you so where you you know yeah because where, where, you're looking. Yeah, where you're looking because i think i think if you're showing that then it's saying actually you, you you're thinking about the best thing for your business because you're essentially looking for the best candidates yeah yeah but sometimes you've got to think well why is it these this you're right in terms of proportion whatever but why is it that these certain subsection of people are applying because where are they seeing this information and actually is this is this you know yeah. we, we've built a network of around twenty five thousand technologists mm. right everyone f anywhere from junior dev right up to so you we know, we need to widen our net as a recruiter because we're always recruiting and we're occasionally struggling with recruitment in certain areas i think let's leave it there Thank you very much for joining us, Phil. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you, Brilliant. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers.